0: Good afternoon. It's Wednesday, the 4th of January, 2023, just after one o'clock. Welcome to UK Column News. Your host today, myself, Brian Garish, Mike Robinson, and uh, we're delighted to be joined by Alex Thompson, uh, bringing us Eastern Approaches from the Netherlands and our nursing correspondent, Debbie Evans. We've Uh got... a lot to cover
1: yeah so we started off Monday with uh, with the new variant uh, of coronavirus which uh, is being called xbb.1.5 but actually it's got a new name to make sure that everybody's particularly scared of it so uh, it's got it's the new variant is called Kraken so it's not Omicron it's not Delta it's Kraken uh, and uh, so uh, everybody should be extremely worried about being eaten by the sea monster uh, what more can we say but look uh, the mirrors front page this morning was this. Uh, Tory hospital crisis, they broke our NHS. Uh, They blame COVID, they blame flu, they blame OAPs, they blame GPs, they blame nurses, Uh, but we know it's 13 years of this lot and they've got images of uh, the most recent five prime ministers there. Um, Well, uh, the question I wanted to know was, are they right? Uh, Was it the uh, Tory party that broke the NHS? So let's just have a a quick look at just a couple of statistics. And I wanted to start off with the annual number of hospital beds in the UK from 2000 uh, to 2021. So the Tory government came in in 2010. That's the orange line there. So everything uh, to the right is what the Tories have done. And everything to the left is what the previous Labour government did. And as is absolutely clear, uh, they did more to decimate the number of beds in the NHS uh, from 2000 to 2010. Uh, as uh, much more than the Tories did from 2010 to 2021 Um, so I don't think it's fair to say that it's the Tories perhaps more fair to say that it's the government uh, because it doesn't really matter which uh, party uh, is in power Uh, the policy remains the same but this was the bit uh, Debbie that I was particularly interested in because of course they're all talking about staff shortages staff shortages everywhere in the NHS and so I just wanted to have a look at uh, what has happened over the same kind of time period to the numbers of nurses, uh, and health visitors, midwives, ambulance staff in the NHS. Uh, and well, the numbers have doubled effectively uh, since 1995. And so my question, Debbie, is what's actually going on here? Because uh, clearly this is not an issue of uh, funding. It's not an issue of staffing. Uh, it must be an issue of how the staff are being deployed because there are f- you know, f- many fewer beds than there were uh, at the turn of the century, many more staff than there were at the, ter- at the turn of the century, so there are more staff per bed. Uh, what's going on?
2: Really good question, Mike, and I think a lot of it goes back to um, the fact that so many of these smaller hospitals have closed and and the beds have decreased and then we've got all of these middle managers and we seem to have nurses that are degree you can only become a nurse now if you've got a degree so i'm 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 more looking at the exodus of nurses is because of conditions but here we're seeing an increase of nurses but do we trust any of the data you know this is the big question do we trust any of the data and personally i don't
0: Uh, I would agree with that, uh, Debbie, but certainly we can see the chaos unfolding in the NHS. And of course, our um, psychology trained uh, guests that we've had on UK Column um, over the last few months have been warning about this psychological attack on people's mind, the shock as the NHS uh, disappears into chaos. It's like having a parent. We're losing a parent and it's causing great stress for a great many people. Um, but you've picked up on The Times here uh, where we've now re- we're blaming the pandemic for the increase in heart deaths and at the same time saying we need more drugs.
2: Yeah, um, this article came out in The Times, uh, Professor Christopher Whitty, uh, saying that because of lockdown, we couldn't get the statins we needed. So, of course, he's going to blame the increase of heart deaths and try and push people towards the pharmaceutical industry yet again. Lest we forget pericarditis, myocarditis caused uh, through the the vaccine. And we must almost... Remember too that pharmaceutical companies rely on sick people, you know there's no business with well people and I've just heard breaking news this morning actually that patients are now going to be sent home without a care plan. So any patients that are seen to be bed blocking because there's no care plan in place within the social care sector, they're going to be discharged anyway. And ambulances are going to be dropping patients off and only leaving in, in London, only leaving, staying in that hospital car park or in the corridor for 45 minutes, and then they're going to be driving off. So the NHS is in complete and utter total collapse. but. I'm sure we'll have many more news on the NHS. What I wanted to do today was just to refresh people's memories on a word that you might hear in the future and you might not have heard in the past. And this word is teratogenic. So if something is teratogenic, it means that basically, This could relate or cause developmental malformations in an embryo or fetus. So just bear with me as we try to make sense of my segment here, because I just want you to be aware of that name. If we move forward and we see how that, um, oh, actually, yes, let me bring, let me take viewers back and say thank you so much. To viewers and listeners that have taken this little clip that we showed on the news um, last week of June, uh, no, just before Christmas of June, Rain saying that there had been no medicine studies in pregnant women since the lidomide. Um, thank you so much to everybody that's retweeted this. It's on UK Column Extracts. Kenny very kindly has put it up. So please do share it because this clip can really save lives and and a massive thank you also to Dr Thomas Binder who's been replying to those and delighted to be able to say that we're now in contact with Dr. Binder, who's got the most extraordinarily brave account of what he's been going through and his account of uh, coronavirus and the whole scam. Um, we'll be speaking to him soon. But if we then move forward, but go backwards at the same time, and remember how um, something that affects fetal abnormalities or gives or manifests in fetal abnormalities, let Let's remember thalidomide. This was only 60 years on. And, you know, if you look at thalidomide, this was never tested on pregnant animals ever and in animals when it was tested too late it was found to be toxic and caused fetal damage in seven species so the thalidomide was immediately withdrawn from the market but yet thalidomide is actually still being used for myeloma and I am hearing of increased cases of diagnoses of myeloma so keep an eye on that but even when we go back to look at thalidomide um, we see what the science museum says about thalidomide Thalidomide changed our relationship with new medicines forever. It took five years for the connection between thalidomide taken by pregnant women and the impact on their children to be made. Not only did thalidomide change people's lives, but it resulted in tighter drug testing and reporting of side effects. And this is where the yellow card was born. The yellow card was actually formed because of the thalidomide scandal. So, when we, when we look at these drugs that cause these absolutely devastating fetal abnormalities, just want to bring people very quickly back to the select committee that we also showed where June Rain said that no medicine studies had been done on pregnant women since thalidomide. And I want to take you just back to that select committee, which was being held on sodium valparate. The sodium valprate is a, a drug that is, is being used still, as we'll see, but was used um, on pregnant women. This drug can affect pregnant women, their babies, and their babies' babies. So, this is generational. So, I just wanted to remind people about what these drugs are doing and the fact that we actually still are using them. And I've got some interesting clips. Very short clips from the select committee the next one that you're going to see I believe is one of um, is Janet Williams um, she is a representative from one of the groups and she's talking about how many women are still on Valparate so um, if we've got the clip perhaps listen to this
3: with the MHRA um, when we started this in 2013 like I said we had meetings um, after finding the archive documents with the minister um, for life sciences and the health secretary at the time, and uh, around about that point, there was about 37,000 women that were on the prescription for valproate. Um, as figures stand now, we believe there's 20,000 women still, still on oh. the drug. Oh. Um, and I mean, the, the pregnancy prevention program really hasn't got going. It's been there since 2018. And, you know, we still women coming to us saying that they've not um, <coughs> been called in or they've had an appointment, but the doctor's not brought the topic up. Um, there's ladies out there that don't have a, an epilepsy review or a bipolar review. Mm. So this information just isn't getting through. Mm. That's very powerful. Emma, do you have anything to add to that?
2: So, as you can hear there, Janet Williams, who's actually the founder of the Fetal Anticonvulsant Trust, in fact, clearly said that there were still 20,000 women on sodium valparate. And other, other, there are plenty of other names for sodium valparate. Epilim is one of them as well. So, just bear in mind that there are 20,000 women. Now, let's hear what June Rain had to say about the prescribing of sodium valparate. Thank
4: you, Chair. Um, I've got a couple of questions. Firstly, about the anticonvulsant uh, usage. There will be some women who have epilepsy who need anticonvulsants in pregnancy um, or while trying to conceive. What guarantees can you give women today who may be looking to conceive when they're pregnant that they're being given the latest information about the anticonvulsants they're using during pregnancy and the relative safety of that? And what are you doing to monitor? those women who are receiving under during pregnancy, so you can identify any potential problems earlier, so this doesn't take many years as it has in this case. After we issued the pregnancy prevention program in 2018, we set up the Valprate registry which has been extended to all anti-epileptics precisely for what you're uh, asking about, which is so that we could monitor switching and change. And the data we have have given some reassurance, as the Minister has said, but we have much further to go. But in a nutshell, the alternatives, Levateracetam and Lamotrigine, are increasing in use in women of childbearing potential to the extent of about 30% increase. Mm -hmm. So we're seeing switching and there is some evidence from our registry that women come off before they're pregnant. So these are good signs, but that doesn't take us away from the fact, as the CHM, the Commission on Human Medicines, and that has announced that much more needs to be done to ensure that no one is on Valparate if there is an effective alternative for them.
2: No one should be on Valparate, and yet we've still got 20,000 women, possibly more, on Valparate. So I don't know, Brian, I'm sure you want to add something. I think you have got something to add.
0: Well, Debbie, I just wanted, for our viewers and listeners, I just wanted to reinforce the severity of what we're talking about here, because when you listen to June Rain in a very calm voice, she's not talking about patient safety and lives and the damage to those lives. She's talking about switching and change. Let's have a look about what we're really dealing with here. this is a BBC headline, Disabilities Caused in Babies excuse me, <clears throat> by epile- Epilepsy Drug, a Scandal. Uh, here's some of the meat of the article, an MP has said harm caused to children after their mothers were given the epilepsy drug, sodium valproate, is an extraordinary scandal. It's thought that about 20,000 children in the UK have been left with disabilities caused by valproate since the 1970s, I believe that figure is much, much higher. But uh, let's have a look at the uh, first clip, uh, which is the BBC talking about um, epilim damage. And uh, this is very distressing.
3: I think for Bridget, I talk for Bridget, I walk for Bridget, I live for Bridget. Her brain um, is brain damaged so she's only got one part of her brain that works and the doctors have turned around and said now, a neurologist doctor has turned around and said that they can't give her no more medication, no more. my heart. She has different kinds of seizures and now she could die any day.
0: So as we look at that we have to say that nobody has effectively been brought to account for the damage done to these children and the MHRA which has supposedly got overall responsibility for safety together with other individuals is clearly doing nothing to evaluate the safety of that particular pharmaceutical product at the same time MHRA is encouraging us to get our children vaccinated with experimental vaccines. Let's have a look at the second BBC clip, which introduces a new problem, that the damage isn't just done to one generation.
3: It's because I took that medication.
2: That's why my kids haven't got a normal life. My grandkids have been affected by it. So many people's lives have been affected and ruined. my
3: kids couldn't cope and try to hang themselves. Little boy, he's nine, he's got dysplaxia, learning difficulties, a bowel condition.
2: We just didn't know. We had no evidence that it was going to be something that was an issue and we were still learning about the longer term effects on the individual who'd been exposed directly to the drug. I do think my grandkids have been affected by it. I've had my worry with my kids growing up. I've got the worry again with my grandkids. How long is it going to go on for?
0: So Debbie, we've now got vaccines, experimental pharmaceutical products unleashed on adults and now the objective is to get them into young children, (coughs) excuse me, the MHRA still not doing its job to protect the public. I don't know what you'd like to, to say in response to that.
2: Um, I'd actually like to say that I think it's worse than that. I think the MHRA are willfully negligent and they are deliberately inflicting damage onto everyone, but specifically unborn babies who have no, no voice, no rights. Nothing. I mean, it's simply shocking that the MHRA are doing this and they need to be exposed, as does the Commission for Human Medicines, who, by the way, don't call themselves a public body, so are effectively exempt from freedom of information. And at that point, very quickly, I'd just like to mention an amazing article by Nick Denham, who's a senior retired civil servant who's put who's written for the um, uh, an amazing article, MHRA Court Hiding Crucial Vaccine. Um, safety. Um, and I think that's in the Daily Skeptic. Well, uh, it's an amazing article where he's exposing the Commission for Human Medicines. So this is criminal, willful democide, in my opinion, Brian.
0: Okay, thank you for that. Well, we'd like to highlight that uh, um, Derek and Joan Bai uh, were a couple who suffered as a result of the damage done to their daughter, Helena. Uh, Helena was the first child to die as a result of sodium valparate. Uh, this is the Guardian article which people can find easily online with a picture of Derek who's now deceased and uh, Joan and uh, we'd also like to encourage people to go to the UK column. If you search for UK column live special paediatric and drug company abuse you can find uh, an audio interview that we did with the buys, which is still available however we did lose some of the information about. Um, they're polite as a result of the takedown by YouTube and uh, Vimeo. Vimeo, Thank you Mike. So let's just see June rain here responsible for safety. She says sodium valparate is kept under constant review and this is the best that the government can say. Well, they're keeping an eye on it. But the reality is that we've got at least 35,000 children who've died or been seriously damaged. And it gets worse, Debbie, because uh, blood is the next big problem.
2: Yeah, I just want to, to refresh people's uh, memories because there's so much going on in the news, we might, we might not see some things. And the infected blood scandal um, has been going on for absolute decades. Um, the Hepatitis um, C Centre put out a statement there. You can just freeze the screen. I'm not going to go into it in too much depth, except to say that this goes back to the 70s and the 80s when it affected many people with haemophilia. Um, and as a result, they contracted hepatitis C and HIV. Those with HIV were given a, a, a payment and basically told put up and shut up and those with hepatitis C have been fighting ever since. So um, I know you've got something to say about the, um, hepat- uh, about the blood inquiry scandal too, Brian.
0: Okay, thank you for that. Well, I just wanted to point um, viewers at some of the material. I'm using BBC articles here because they Don't contain a lot of detail, but they do at least uh, highlight where the problem is. So this is the BBC. What is the contaminated blood inquiry? Uh, Infection of up to 30,000 people with contaminated blood. Thousands have died. And then we learn that a public inquiry has been taking evidence since 2019. Still no results, Uh, but real lives affected. Here is... uh, Uh, One youngster, now an adult who had severe haemophilia, uh, was sent to a special school, Lord uh, Mayor Trelaw College, which actually had NHS doctors on site. But what was happening is the children were given contaminated blood products and this caused huge problems for these children. So you can easily find the history. The point the UK column is making today is despite all of the evidence, all of the damage to the children, the suffering of their parents, the government, the NHS, the safety bodies, such as the MHRA, have still not got to grips with the problem. And you've got a little bit more on the infected blood inquiry here
2: wanted to highlight it. Well, you'll see the reason I wanted to highlight it, but particularly because, I mean, there's a whole new debate about vaccinated blood, unvaccinated blood, what's safe, what isn't safe, what's screened, what isn't screened. So the reason I'm highlighting it is because this has been going on for decades and it's still not resolved. It really is still not resolved. And yet here we are again, history repeating itself. So when I go to look at uh, Dr. Uh, Dame, sorry, June Rain, as everyone knows that I like to, I found that she'd actually been called to give evidence, not once, not twice, but three times at the blood inquiry. Um, Blood, uh, The the Infected Blood Inquiry. Now, please, please go to YouTube because as you'll see from the first clip in a minute, they are not expecting very many people to watch this. Now, I've only been able to pull out a couple of clips because the first uh, the first YouTube with June Rain is like one and a half hours of evidence. The second one is about 20 minutes. And the third one, which is specifically on yellow cards, is number three, so please go to YouTube. We will be disseminating some more of this video because it is simply phenomenal. So have a look at the very beginning of Dame June Rain's evidence.
5: Good afternoon, Dr. Rain. Uh, My apologies to you for having been delayed a little bit in the start of your session. This morning's session was uh, continuing, um, but it's now time for, for yours. Let me explain uh, how things are done. I think you would have picked this up from having been here uh, earlier. But in any event, let me tell you, uh, in the, the room, there are a number of people who have been infected and affected. Um, on your left, there are lawyers, including Ms. Richards, who will ask you the questions once you have been sworn. Uh, on the back left, uh, there are representatives of the press. Um, you will be talking, however, an audience beyond this room, both in this building, but more particularly, more numerously, I should say, uh, in, uh, on YouTube and in live stream. Uh, they will number somewhere in the three-figure bracket. Mary. Please state your
4: full name. I am June Munro Rain. Take the book in your raised hand and repeat after me. I swear by almighty God. I swear by almighty God. That the evidence I shall give. That the evidence I shall give. Shall be the truth. Shall be the truth. The whole truth. The whole truth.
2: And nothing but the truth.
4: And nothing but the truth.
2: So I'm sure. I mean, I would personally love to see that happen again. June rain sworn in. I thought people might enjoy that. It's interesting to to see the chair there. Who's Sir Brian Langstaff? Um, who's the chair of the inquiry he was appointed on the 8th of February 2018 how he doesn't expect many people to watch this three three figures he said so please everybody out there who wants something who wants to feel as though they want to do something please look at those YouTube's even if you just click on them and view for a little while it still registers. Um, The KC uh, King's Council is Jenny Richards and just one member of the blood inquiry board that I just want to mention because they do have a blood inquiry website is a lady called Jennifer Cole she's from the cabinet office and she's um, also got experience with Tehran, NATO um, into international terrorist kidnaps so you'll be relieved to know that she's on the board but let's just see some of the things and honestly this blood inquiry is so dynamite because you have to remember that Dame Rain is sworn on oath there are a million clips I could have chosen but I've chosen the next clip. Please remember, she is on oath.
5: Um, so that's
4: the only additional question I had. Do you have any questions
5: for Dr. Uh, well, just one which really arises yeah. out of that exchange. Um, when, when a person has a, a headache and pops an aspirin, um, they know pretty well whether it's worked or whether it hasn't, because the effect is so close to the administration of the dose. Um they will also know if they suffer any adverse effects on the same sort of basis, because it, there's a an administration of a, a drug or, or a product, uh, and there's a, a, a problem which arises pretty quickly afterwards, uh, so that by process of the usual way that people work, they think, well, this is probably the cause of that. It may not be, but it probably is. How does the system, particularly of yellow cards, work, and how does the patient know that it works, or may work, with uh, effects which are not particularly specific but are really very much delayed?
4: I think that's a situation where spontaneous reporting the yellow card will be less effective because of the challenge in attributing to a particular medicine that's been taken something that has happened much later on. It it does happen, uh, but for members of the public, less likely. Healthcare professionals have in the past provided useful information, often when they've seen a number of cases and have started to um, put together in their minds what the causal agent might have been. But I think for members of the public, it's that close temporal relationship that prompts reporting for most of the
5: time. So in in such a case, it's it's quite likely with, even with the current system of reporting, uh, that there will have to be a body of experience which eventually somebody, healthcare practitioner twigs, is probably or possibly due to this, (coughs) and then sends that message through. Um, If he or she does, then the possibly, due to this, given the weight of experience, may be backed up by others, but it still is a possibly. Is that what you mean by a real risk?
4: Well, we always welcome suspicions. That's the whole nature of the, the scheme, that no one has to prove anything. And I think what you're describing may be when there's a body of experience, how do we capture that? And that can be through publications or a health professional contacting us in a general way or um, describing something, um, as I say, in the literature. So that is a an area that we maybe could do more on to foster, but certainly a suspicion should never be dismissed. It what can be vital.
5: What more would you do?
4: I think uh, we've been asked recently about our open door, and I think that might be something to think further about how clinicians' uh, general learnings can be shared with us. And I mentioned our consultation at the moment, not just about how clinicians would like to hear from us or healthcare professionals would like to hear from us about newly identified risk, but how they would like to convey it to us. In other words, it doesn't have to be one patient, one reaction, it can be a broader concern.
5: Yes. I don't know if any questions arise out of that. They don't know.
4: Um, Dr Wren, is there anything that you wish to add? I would like to express my very sincere sympathy for the suffering that's resulted from this terrible tragedy and offer my commitment to strengthen the regulatory system so that it works well for everyone and that we operate in a climate of openness and transparency, putting patients' interests at the heart to do everything to ensure that the regulator has a part to play in making sure this doesn't happen again. Thank you, Dr. Rain.
1: Debbie, that that final comment there was just quite staggering because, of course, uh, the MHRA's yellow card uh, system for uh, COVID vaccines, uh, well, the transparency available there was uh, non-existent until the UK column put up our yellow card website. And then the last two months, uh, sorry, in the last uh, two or three weeks, uh, the MHRA has now published an updated yellow card uh, reporting website, which attempts to replicate some of what they produce some data that we don't produce because they never published that data in the first place or they didn't make it publicly available in the past. But they've suddenly started publishing graphs and stuff like this, uh, which I can't imagine where they got that idea from.
2: You know, Mike, you're absolutely right, and there's so much that I could add to this, but I'm going to, I'm going to give 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 the time to, to Alex and to the rest of the segments we've got here because I know that we'll probably have to do uh, a whole new segment on just this infected blood inquiry YouTube because what June Rain says there is simply phenomenal, and there's so much of it to disseminate. So gobsmacked.
0: And uh, Debbie, let's let's just remind the audience that of course infected blood, if you get blood from somebody who's been vaccinated with an experimental vaccine, we have no idea of the safety of that blood. But let's bring this particular individual on screen, Ken Clark, who was uh, questioned at the inquiry. Um, a lot of people very interested in Mr. Clark because of course at the time he was uh, responsible for health when sodium evaporate. Was was a problem, and there are uh, families that allege that he was instrumental in making sure that group actions against the pharmaceutical companies did not proceed as smoothly as they might have. That is an allegation, but uh, it's very interesting to see them also ask questions within the blood inquiry. Let's look at how he presented himself.
6: I don't recall any policy meeting, me as a minister, don't recall anybody ever asking me to take a decision on blood products. Uh, I, I don't think I ever took a decision on blood products, apart from clearing the issue in leaflets and things that came along. I don't remember attending a formal policy discussion in which we discussed what do we do about these mounting concerns. We have American stuff. Should we Start stop importing it, so that the doctors have to stop prescribing using it. Uh, I think of that kind. What are the consequences of doing that? Although, as yes, we've seen in various parts of the department, medics and specialists were considering that. I, I just wasn't the blood products minister. <laughs> so, so that, that, that uh, she would have said that, that that's what I told them, and that's what I still say. This, this was in 2020. What I've had to put up with and it's it exasperates me at times is purely by chance I have remained the best known person of all those people involved. I'm a kind of ageing, fading B-list celebrity now. They're the only people the general public have heard of who were involved are Norman Fowler and myself. And so there's a tendency for the campaigners and for the press to try to want to attach everything due to this to me. as so though because I was in the department at the time, I took all the decisions. If not me, Norman will have to do, you know, and the, the people try to influence inquiries. They're always trying to steer them to find some celebrity whose fault it was. Uh, so this was the latest attempt with as you saw the detailed things they wanted me to answer questions about that was my response perfectly accurate response to the role I played all those years before it, blood products took a tiny tiny proportion of my total time in the op- when I was in the office as it were in DHSS
0: Well, a demonstration in my mind of unbelievable arrogance and certainly no apparent concern for the damaged individuals. But Alex, I think uh, you wanted to comment here.
1: You're muted, Alex. You're still muted, Alex. No, no, sorry.
0: Unfortunately, we've got no sound from... uh, uh, Alex, we'll, let we'll Alex, come back. We'll come we'll, back. We'll to... come back. Let's very quickly take you to this remarkable discovery. If we go to the infected blood inquiry website, because we discover that they conducted a risk assessment. Yes, a risk assessment into COVID. Here it is. This risk assessment sets out the inquiry's measures to reduce the risk from coronavirus. So we haven't done any risk assessments on the pharmaceutical products in order to prevent the immense damage that they've done, including the vaccines, but we can carry out a risk assessment in order to supposedly protect people at the inquiry itself. So we'll just flick through the layers of this risk assessment, not a particularly detailed nor a quantitative risk assessment in my opinion but how interesting that uh, they've actually carried out a risk assessment on coronavirus, but not on the pharmaceutical products themselves. So we have two questions for Sir Brian Langstaff, who's the chair of the Infected Blood Inquiry. The first one is, if the Infected Blood Inquiry understands the need for a COVID-19 risk assessment, why has the MHRA not produced a quantitative risk assessment for blood and vaccines? And a second question we feel should be, why has the inquiry not questioned June rain over the failure of the MHRA to to conduct appropriate due diligence with that quantitative risk assessment for all pharmaceutical products, including sodium valparate and COVID-9 vaccines? Um, Will we get an answer to those questions? I very much doubt it, but these are the right questions. And we just want to add here to finish this segment, that um, you can find that uh, there was a notice of determination by the Chancellor of the Duchy of Lancaster to the Chairman of the Infected Blood Inquiry, and essentially it's saying due to the exceptional nature and gravity of the infected blood tragedy and the impact on the people who were infected, their partners, children, parents, families, um, that in the public interest they ought to be eligible for an award to help with uh, legal costs and indeed compensation but no actual uh, getting to grips with the pro with the with the issue at hand um alex have we have we got you uh, on audio now no we have not no, haven't. Um, no that's unfortunately, a shame. unfortunately okay um debbie let's just uh uh bring bring this one back over to you um and this is looking at the safety aspect um, i'd be grateful if you take us through the remainder of your slides as quickly as we can so that we can get on to other issues but uh, this is such an important subject
2: it is and i just wanted to remind people very quickly of some per mohammed so muneer per mohammed is the chair of the commission for human medicines now you might like to see there that, that they've actually got a vacancy for a paediatric medicines expert advisory group. So that's not looking terribly good, is it? That they've actually got a vacancy. But bearing in mind what you just heard, the June rain said, and I quote, suspicion must never be dismissed. Please cast your mind back to the letter that I received from uh, Professor Per Mohammed, and we'll just flash it up on screen. And, and please freeze the screen. We won't waste time in, in going through it. But on the second sheet there, um, the bottom paragraph, it says the determination of whether reports of suspected adversary reactions are likely to be caused by the vaccines or are coincidental so he's referring to suspicions as coincidental he also goes on at the top to say there's no evidence of a change of cardiac related deaths when we clearly know that there are now and he also goes on to clarify his position with regards to pregnancy Um, and at the end he says actually you know what in the UK 1700 people die every single day so you know that's probably what this has all been course through. So let's not let uh, Sir Mania per Mohammed off the hook because still, as I'm speaking to you now, there are babies dying, there are stillbirths rising, miscarriages rising, and the MHRA data is showing an increase um, in, in in problems with within pregnancy and with babies when they're born. So this is a really, really important issue. And to be honest with you, pregnant women really shouldn't take anything in pregnancy you know not even an aspirin (laughs) really to take an experimental novel injection is insane in my opinion
0: okay um debbie you've just got a couple of uh, other topics here very very quickly just to flag them up and of course the audience can always freeze the screen to have a look at the detail
2: okay well the first one is from the nhs website with regards to an increase of dementia diagnoses this is really really concerning because they're doing pilots all over the country and they're diagnosing patients that aren't showing symptoms now Alex um, has got my blog and my blog um, goes into dementia and diagnosis Um, so please check my blogs out because where I can't talk about a a, a story in detail I can in my blog but this is a significant story then we've also got a very worrying story in that nine out of ten people are trusted community pharmacists Now we know that community pharmacists are going to be replacing GPs so we really don't we don't want to be seeing this pharmacists are not trained doctors they also don't have your medical history there's a trial in Cornwall so if you go into a, a, a I say a chemist and they are chemicals but if you go into a pharmacist in Cornwall with a cough and you want a cough medicine you're likely to have to answer 20 questions uh, or get a a referral straight to the hospital. So anybody popping in with a urine retract infection or a cough could end up being rerouted to the hospital. Equally, we've got the NHS rolling out medical devices for diabetes patients. And we've also got the UK announcing that we're going to eliminate hepatitis C um, ahead of the rest of the world. Well, that's interesting, isn't it? Considering what we've just been talking about with the infected blood um, scandal. So there's loads of NHS stories coming up, but there's just a few of them to to highlight. Um, my next my next little piece is, and I will let you freeze the screen on this because I wrote a Freedom of Information to my GP asking if they were signed to non-disclosure agreements, how much revenue they'd received from the COVID vaccination program, and also how many patients within my practice had died. My practice has approximately 8,000. I don't know if you want to read out a couple of the bits, it's a bit small for me, Brian, and I don't want to take up too much time, but basically we can see that GPs are signed up to non-disclosure agreements, but I'll let you take that further, Brian.
0: Okay, well, the first statement of importance is, uh, they say, I'd like to point out that there aren't straightforward answers to some of your questions. That's always the start of a smokescreen for me, Um, but it, it then goes on to talk about the green book and says, unfortunately, separating out which doses were given when and by which provider and hence which level of reimbursement was attracted could be a huge undertaking. So they can't answer details about that. But it says, as outlined on our practice website, um, we are a research active practice as such. Research GPs and other staff have non-disclosure agreement with research companies. So we're now learning that your medical data is even being used by your GP uh, in partnership with the pharmaceutical companies. That doesn't give me a warm feeling. Um,
1: Right. We we
0: need to move on, Debbie. We'll, we can cover this a little bit more in the extra time, but thank you for that comprehensive segment.
1: Okay, if you like what the UK Column does, you'd like to support us, uh, please head over to community.ukcolumn.org. You can become a member there. There are other ways to help us out as well. Uh, you can pick something up at the UK Column shop, uh,
0: but please do uh, continue to share material on the various platforms. Okay, we've got a reminder of um, Truth Be Told in Edinburgh on the 7th of January at 1pm St. Giles Cathedral which uh, David Scott would like us to remind the audience and uh, where does that take us? It takes us to some mentions if we've got you Alex. Yeah Alex, hopefully uh, a couple of articles on the website.
7: I hope I'm in the land of the audible gentleman. Yes, you are indeed, yes. Good, very well. So in the comment section near the bottom of the homepage, ukcolumn.org, you will find not only Debbie's blogs, uh, as previously mentioned, and if you click on her name in red, you can get to the previous blogs like her Christmas and New Year specials that you might have missed. But also in that section is Mark Anderson's piece on catastrophic contagion, which he's reported about on UK Column News, orally for us. Uh, It predicts uh, that it's an exercise held in New York City in October last year with the usual sponsors, uh, the Gates Foundation chief among them. Um, Here's another fictional scenario, uh, an an enterovirus being spread by respiratory uh, infection in the fictional scenario of 2025. Um, This time there was a big emphasis, as you can see on screen at the moment, on squashing information. Mark Anderson opined that this focus strongly suggests that another monopolistic push for vaccination is likely waiting to be declared. there is even more. This is why we put it in the uh, comment section rather than article. He he gives more of his opinions, which I won't read out, but he goes back to the founding um, of the uh, World Health uh, Organization under the Canadian notorious man to some of our viewers, George Brock Chisholm, who was quite open about abolishing nations and religions like many of the bien-pensants of his era, Huxley and Wells among them. So there is that. Uh, also, Debbie has published a piece which we have put on the article section. Uh, asking what MediCrime is. Now, she originally wrote this in summer, but we have been holding back until now to publish it. We thought now would be a good time with the renewed focus on the MHRA and particularly the letter that she's had from, we think he's deputy head of enforcement, but it seems to vary, Andy Morling, of whom a letter is also going to go up soon as Debbie promised. Uh, In this category, Debbie asks whether family doctors, known as GPs in Britain, are possibly committing a medical crime by not having obtained... Uh, obtained uh, informed consent before jabbing. And she goes on to talk about uh, the non-trained people who as volunteers or low-level draftees, jabbed people who then suffered hundreds of thousands of suspected adverse reactions to the COVID jabbing and Debbie points out that every injection has been administered by someone and those someones would appear to be complicit in and potentially liable to be convicted of a medicrime. Read both of these with care and the comment that I was ab- about to make with regards to um, the Secretary of State for Health, uh, Kenneth Clark, the supreme arrogant one, and then more latterly, Jeremy Hunt, uh, is this. Uh, Andrew Bridgen, the MP for Northwest Leicestershire, has been doing a number of interviews with dissident Media, James Dellingpole, uh, Irreverent podcast, and then also with NHS 100K. And it was in that latter one that Bridgen said, that Jeremy Hunt, uh, when he stopped being the Secretary of State for Health, which he'd had for seven years as a title, and when he'd started instead chairing the Parliamentary Select Committee for Health, the body that was hearing evidence from Dame June Rain there, uh, Hunt was, as we now know from Bridgen, routinely or regularly asked would you please read this scientific paper the relevance of which is obvious because we heard in that video clip with dr rebecca bromley about the horrors of epilim sodium valproate that until papers were published regulatory authorities and the politicians who supervised them had no idea of problems what bridgen has now testified is that hunt said stop sending me these um papers i am not able to read them and Bridgen, who is a biochemist himself, Oxford trained, wasn't having that and said, I think it's more the case that you're not willing to read them. I think we get a, a hint there that, uh, that Clark, who's also intelligent, not in a good way, perhaps, is of the same mould. I didn't concern myself with these pesky little plebs and their blood problems. And so you can't uh, take action against me in this inquiry because I knew nothing of it. But the box stops with them.
1: It yep. does indeed. Thank you. Okay, let's uh, let's move on to Ukraine then, and uh, I want to focus uh, for first couple of minutes on this uh, blog post uh, in uh, on a Swiss website. Uh, and this is a, a, a rough translation of it, looking for peace in Ukraine. This is by uh, Jacques Baud, and uh, Alex can t- uh, tell me the correct pronunciation of his name in a minute, but he is a former head in pol- of policy and doctrine at the UN uh, Department of Peacekeeping Operations. He was a security advisor uh, at NATO, and he was a colonel in the Swiss Army. He's currently an independent security consultant, and he's basically talking about uh, what led up to the situation in Ukraine at the moment. Uh, he begins by saying, today our media shows us the tragic images of children and civilians who fled to Kiev metro in the cold and dark to seek shelter from the bombs. This is sad, and they deserve our sympathy. It is, of course, easy to blame Russia for this, yet neither of these Ukrainians uh, nor our media, diplomats or governments, uh, have shown the same sympathy for the other Ukrainians who have been bombarded by Kiev's armies in the Donbas for eight years have spent every Christmas and every winter in the same condition since 2014. And he's asking, why is that? Uh, now, it's a, it's a very long uh, piece. I recommend that people read it through Google Translate. In the meantime, hopefully we will be able to provide an English translation for it in the not too distant future. He talks about narratives that prevent peace. And I just want to f- focus on one there, which is the middle one that Russian intervention is said to have been caused by NATO's eastward expansion. And he's making the point that, uh, uh, actually at one point, Russia was hoping uh, to be a part of a cooperative uh, arrangement with NATO uh, and it was really only after George W. Bush became uh, the US president and started removing the United States from various arms treaties uh, that uh, things changed with Russia. Uh, but uh, heres here's the thing. Uh, the trigger for Russian special operation for the Russian special operation was the Donbass. He says the victims of the Donbass will never be mentioned in the media, because uh, they are the real reason behind the Russian intervention. Some say that this is just a pretense. It's entirely possible. But but we did everything we could to provide Putin with this pretext, uh, and the pretext is perfectly legit, legitimate in itself. It's nothing other than applying the principle of responsibility to protect. Um, it should be noted that our media uh, date, the beginning of the war. Uh, to February 2022. However, this war started back in 2014, and the Russian intervention is just a military operation within the framework of this war. However, the neo-Nazis deny that this war, uh, that it is a war, and since 2015 have been calling it an anti-terrorist operation to avoid having to comply with international human rights law uh, and humanitarian laws. And Again, he focuses, and rightly so, on Angela Merkel's statements recently about the Minsk agreements being merely a a mechanism for the West to to delay things, to give the Ukrainians an opportunity to rearm, and so on. Uh, And uh, I just want to remind everybody that over the years, we have been bombarded with various think tanks and so on. Don't let Russia fool you about the Minsk agreements article after article in the media from think tanks uh, and other foundations and so on. Uh, But in the meantime, uh, the EU was imposing sanctions linked to the Minsk agreements. Now, this page from the uh, European Council website uh, includes an infographic. I'm not going to show that infographic. The key point here is in March 2015, EU leaders decided to link the existing economic sanctions regime to the complete implementation of the Minsk agreements. But we already know, we now know from Merkel and from Alland, that those Minsk agreements were a sham, a scam from the start. Uh, We also had articles like this time and time again, even quoting Merkel, disingenuous as she was being at the time, EU will lift Russia sanctions when Minsk Accords implemented. They knew that they had no intention of implementing the uh, Minsk Accords, but they were blaming the Russians for this. Uh, at the time. But coming back to uh, Monsieur Baud's uh, uh, article here, um, he's asking, didn't we have something similar to this scam over Minsk not too long ago? And he says, yes, uh, that immediately reminded me uh, that immediately reminded me of the situation with Frank-Walter Steinmeier in 2014. One must not forget that shortly after the coup, sorry, shortly before the coup in Ukraine, a five-point plan was negotiated. Steinmeier, as German foreign minister, French Foreign Minister Fabius, Polish Foreign Minister Sikorsky, and diplomatic representative of Russia were present, as well as the opposition leaders, and the Ukrainian President Yanukovych. Uh, This is the deal with the shortest half-life in the history of the world, having expired in just a few hours. When I asked the then Foreign Minister, uh, the current Federal President, frank walter Steinmeier, about this in committee, he replied that Yanukovych lost the basis of this agreement by fleeing from Kiev to eastern Ukraine and later to Russia. And, Alex, this is just an incredible statement, I think, because what what we're seeing is the absolute disingenuousness of the entire process. The, the suggestion that Yanukovych ran away from Ukraine, remembering that he ran away in fear of his life because of a coup taking place at the time and, therefore, Blaming him for running away as the excuse for not implementing a peace deal is just incredible.
7: This is how the West tends to treat its patsies. Uh, The only thing open to serious doubt is there's a persuasion, including Joel Skousen, that say uh, the West must have been in on this deal, or rather Russia must have been in on it at some point in 2014 because the Berkut crack troops uh, inexplicably didn't open fire on the protesters during that coup. Uh, otherwise, what you've set out uh, from Colonel Beau's, uh writing and speaking is, is spot on, of course. And uh, Bo's book is only available in French last time I checked, but we'll put the link to that in the show notes and hope that a translation of that book is, arrives in English in due course. He's taken a very dispassionate view of the situation. He's describing the foreign ministers of France, Germany, Poland and Russia there because that is the Minsk format. And the Ukrainians... Uh, not just their supposed cheerleaders, but those more skeptical within the UK column stable of contributors too, like Ian Davis, who's got a forthcoming piece with us on multipolarity, which is, takes a much more uh, skeptical line on Russia than some of us. Davis too is, is pointing out in that forthcoming piece uh, that the Ukrainians never had any intention of implementing Minsk, no secret of that. In addition to Merkel's revelations and Hollande's revelations, the Italian press has got into far more detail just in the last month. This has been taken note of in, in Brussels. There was never any implement uh, in, in, uh, intention. I think we've mentioned recently that there was a uh, the Ukrainians on the on the eve of the twenty two twenty twenty two open hostilities. And Ian Davis correctly says it's the continuation of an eight year war. As does Jacques beau uh, At that point, they were on the verge of claiming the Vienna Convention exemption uh, that they had been made to sign Minsk under duress. You know, and whenever you confront pro Ukrainian or pro-Ukrainian government cheerleaders, uh, including cultured Eastern European allies of Ukraine that you meet. If you press them on this point of Donbass being shelled, they have nothing to say other than the fallback line of, come on, we know that Russia always seeks a pretext to invade its neighboring countries. Nothing more than that, nobody is actually denying it straight, flat out. But in honour of the Colonel Beau's uh, Swissness and also in honour of Dr Binder watching us, I think now regularly from the fine canton of Argau, that great cardiologist, um, I thought that a Swiss proverb would uh, be uh, in, in order here. Uh, the Swiss, at least in the in the 80s, likes to put philosophical graffiti on buildings. So in 1983, just under 40 years ago now, somebody scrawled on the walls of the Swiss National Library: "Wahrheit kann, kann nicht durchsiedet sondern um gelebt." Uh, Truth is not it is to be lived, not lectured, which I think is very apt for this uh, this time. Uh, if you want to hear Colonel Bowie in English, listen to the Delling Pod from last year, which will also be in the show notes in due course. Now let's go on to Ian Davis because. Um, but we, we should remind ourselves, and we have come under fire for this piece precisely because of the his claims of genocide in the Donbass, that last year, May twenty twenty two, uh, Ian came out with this long piece. Does Ukraine need to be denazified? Um The red and black flag, which was the image, art, uh, image uh, article image article uh, image, is for a number of far-right Ukrainian elements. Uh, the old interwar UPA, the Banderites, and now the right sector, which is a cluster of neo-Nazi groups, politically and militarily. And I won't read that out. But uh, Ian set out dispassionately here that Bandera uh stepan bandera uh was of course the granddaddy of interwar ukrainian insurgency he was an uneasy ally of the nazis and in his name his followers told the large jewish population of galicia that they would chop off their heads and lay them at hitler's feet Uh, so this is the kind of man bandera was 1st of January is not only New Year's Day at least in the Gregorian calendar the Slavs still have the Julian calendar for some purposes uh, but it's also Stepan Bandera's birthday he was born in 1909 or rather the anniversary of his birth since he's long dead so um, just to remind people of the pe- place he pl- position he has in Ukrainian culture this is a Ukrainian rebel song so you know it's a bit similar to Irish rebel songs but goes a lot further than that um, and I've just done a translation of uh, of some of it, which is, as you can see from their website, it's a mainstream song, you know, regarded as suitable for sing-alongs with, with old and young from their website, peace.org.ua, so uh, songs.org, Ukraine. And uh, what they sing there is, we have never lived in Concord with the Muscovites. We even joined battle against Peter the Great. The Muscovites, or Moscals fled until they lost their footing while our lads kept firing shots at their back. And then this chorus, bandera, Ukraina mate, Ukraini budem boy, 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 Our father is Bandera, Ukraine is our mother, we'll keep fighting for Ukraine. This man, is his name is still prayed in aid uh, in the uh, all fronts struggle against the supposed enemy of the Moscows. So it was the 1st of January, just a couple of days ago. And here is the main square in Lviv, where I've been, I think, three or four times now, uh, with a mixture of red and black Ukrainian Nazi element flags and Ukrainian national flags in front of Stepan Banderas statue to celebrate his birthday. Um, Here are some children sitting on his statue. And uh, here, ringed by somebody, is uh, a a young uh, gentleman with prominent cheekbones that you can see standing in amongst a, a contingent of scouts by the look of them. Who is this gentleman? He's none other than Andriy Sadovi, the mayor of Lviv. This is very mainstream stuff, actually. Um, We also have uh, footage, which I think is the very next slide, isn't it? Uh, Yes, yes, it is. We'll we'll move on now to this video from the neighboring uh, Western Ukrainian, very nationalistic city of Ivano-Frankivsk, in fact, renamed uh, after that Ukrainian Insurgent in 1962. It was uh, not the historic name of the city, but the Soviets were having trouble with uh, the, the Banderites in the 60s, so they threw them a sop by renaming the whole city after Ivan Franko. So in that city, There was also a Bandera commemoration on the 1st of January for the anniversary of his birth. And in a 45 second clip, you will see priests of the Uniate Church, that's the Greek Catholics. So they have an Eastern rite, but they're in union with the Vatican, uh, chanting a celebration of the life of Stepan Bandera while uh, while, uh, veterans look on.
8: (laughs) він
6: даси моїй дорі без слави руки і я пришла до нього рина мартелю поживі дає залує я пришла до нього рина
2: мартеля що
6: вибачить залує його
7: It's a terrible shame that they're using that unmatched Ukrainian skill in vocal harmony to celebrate such a monster. And this isn't just a minor point. I mean, personally I deplore it because I've knocked around in Western Ukraine with the Uniates and have a lot of respect for how they withstood the Gulag persecution. Uh, There were so many of them in the Gulag actually, but now this is what it's led to. And the next clip I'm about to show will show the fruits of this religious uh, Jihad, which has now been imposed. Uh, From the same part of the country, from the Northwestern Oblast of Rivne, we'll see a man who is a priest in the Ukrainian Orthodox Church, more specifically the one that's in union with the Moscow Patriarchy, because for a few years now, there's been two. These are the ones who still are in uh, communion with the uh, Patriarch in Moscow. Uh, And of course, in Rivne, in the far west of Ukraine, they are under a lot of pressure, but they do have Russian-speaking priests who hold services in Russian. And you'll see that a, a man who's just escaped narrowly having been beaten up by his own parishioners, uh, comes out and while he's puffing and panting and holding a tree trunk for support, he says he can't understand how his parishioners of 21 years have turned on him. We'll see only a few seconds of it, but the subtitling comes to a climax, not in the clip you'll see, where he says that uh, a religious war, a total war, has been uh, imposed on the people and they've lost their minds. Let's roll that clip.
6: Я захищаю Українську Православну Церкву. Я розслужив 21 рік. Цих людей хрестив, хоронив, родичів близьких, вінчав, Разом з ними гостилися, і він кровом був разом з ними. І зараз ви бачите, що зі мною зробили. Причина в тому, що релігійна ворожнеча між людьми сталася. Тому що закони непрагато прийняті державою, вони створили не тільки війну на Сході, а вони в селах роблять теж.
7: So that enough to see what kind of state he's in, and he's saying that it's not just in the far east of the country uh, that the war is being fought, nor even the major cities, but right down to village level. And he's speaking fairly good Ukrainian, though it's evidently not his native language. Uh, He's saying, you know, people's minds have been turned. Uh, This isn't a few hotheads either, uh, because if we bring this slide on screen, here is a a wall map, uh, which has been doing around in the Ukrainian press of a dismembered Russian federation. Everything uh, east of Sakha or Yakutia has been turned into a far eastern uh, sovereign state. Sakhalin has been given to Japan. Uh, The whole of the Kola Peninsula and Karelia has been given to Finland, marked with a Cyrillic F in the top left-hand corner. The exclave of Kaliningrad, which used to be Konigsberg in the far west, uh, has been given to the Federal Republic of Germany, telling me not to Poland, because there's a bit of tension there, a lot of tension. Greater Ukraine's been marked off in an oval in the west. Uh, The North Caucasus has been marked Ichkeria, which is a reference to the anti-Russian Islamic uh, jihad insurgents that were in the North Caucasus, still are, but were very active some years ago. And then the rump of European Russia has been marked RF, Russian Federation. Uh, The bulk of uh, Siberia has been called the Central Asian Republic. This isn't just wishful thinking by some uh, nobody. This is actually uh, the head of Ukrainian military intelligence not the SBU the civilian intelligence agency uh, but the equally feared military intelligence uh, unit so uh, this has actually been brought out not by Russian journalists but by Ukrainian journalists for Liha uh, a Ukrainian title uh, who went into Kirill Budanov's office and who surreptitiously or otherwise managed to photograph that in on the wall um, Budanov uh, is reported as saying that possibly on the anniversary of the start of the hot war, 24th of February this year, but certainly soon, uh, Ukrainian troops intend to take Crimea back by force. Uh, this is you know, the level of, uh, of disconnect that they now have. Um, just in passing as well, to show the total cleansing of Russianness from the Ukraine, another Ukrainian press title, New Voice, uh, interviews here Alexander Abra- Avramenko, uh, the coach who managed to get uh, President Zelensky to speak a possible Ukrainian because he was never brought up speaking it and nobody around him did, but he switched to using Ukrainian rather, st- uh, rather woodenly in his uh, pronouncements. Uh, this is his language coach. And he's now saying that in 20 years, the Ukrainians will have made a psychological switch and there will be no Russian speaker spoken uh, in Ukraine. He says there's, a, there's, a, there's, there's no more animus for it and the next generation will have learned uh, not to speak it. So it's not looking fo- hopeful, certainly compared with you know the standards that uh, that European nations are supposed to stand up sign up to with the Council of Europe and the OSCE to respect national minorities but let's move on to uh, more Ukrainian news uh, one of the many tranches of loan which the Ukrainians have recently received from Europe and we've been reporting on it uh, is one of 200 million euros from the Netherlands it's a preferential loan uh, interest is accrued on the loan amount at the annual interest rate equal to the basic interest rate of the IMF Final repayment of the loan is carried out 10 years from the date of the loan settlement. Credit funds are intended for financing expenditures of the general fund of the state budget. This looks like a trap to me, and we've been reporting on it before. More detail from Bloomberg. President Zelensky has announced, we don't know whether he'll be going in person or doing one of his famous video uh, olive t-shirt video appearances, but Zelensky has been, uh, has been saying that he's going to appear in some form at Davos very shortly, a couple of weeks from now to uh, participate formally uh, in in, uh, the World Economic Forum on Ukraine's behalf. And he's been talking to Larry Fink of BlackRock over a post-war reconstruction fund. And uh, Zelensky also had a video call with uh, Fink in September about this. If we go to the President of Ukraine official website, we can also see that he's talking about that. I'll skip over for for lack of time, but you can see that he's thanking Larry Fink for the professional team that BlackRock has allocated to advise him on reconstructing the country. Uh, It's looking a bit like the country is being owned lock, stock, and barrel now. Mm -hmm. Uh, We were tipped off to this as well by uh, a European source. The Danish Ministry of Defense last summer uh, had people come to Copenhagen. There is the olive T-shirted one uh, doing his video wave again. And uh, this is the Danish Prime Minister talking to Zelensky in summer, Uh, about a conference of donors. This one just seems to have bled dry. Uh, People seem to be forgetting that there's a limited and single source of money in Europe, ultimately. So uh, the idea was that uh, Western donors uh, were going to drum up support. And that seems to have... Petered out. So uh, an Eastern European source tipped me off, Uh, it takes one to know one really, saying that uh, the forthcoming conference in Kiev, the first donors conference being held in Kiev, now being reported by Agence France-Presse via the Voice of America, this is quite a breakthrough. So in the 3rd of February, a month from now, Ukraine and the EU will hold a summit in country. How are those vast uh, diplomatic entourages going to be provided with security while the city's under fire? I have no idea. Perhaps it's symbolic. Uh, But now the EU has had a super deal to clear the way for Ukrainian uh, uh, assistance. The remaining member states have withdrawn their objections, been bought off. Um, This is quite significant. And the Eastern European source suggested that there was going to be a sort of Eastern European wedding feel to it that instead of families being cajoled into vying with each other for gift wedding gift it's going to be countries and the, the hosts may be going around the table saying Poland has stumped up x billion and Italy x billion uh, who's going to outdo them that's possibly why it's going to be held in Kiev.
1: Mm. Okay brilliant thank you for that Alex uh, now let's uh, move back to the UK then and inflation uh, and this uh, article here uh, from Uh, I do apologise I can't remember the BRC um, everybody can look that up but inflation to continue into 2023 and really what I wanted to highlight here was that that where the inflation is because of course it's on staples things that everybody needs including the poorest Uh, so food inflation accelerated accelerated strongly to 13.3 percent in December up from 12.4 percent in November Uh, this is above the three month average rate of 12.5 percent this is the highest inflation rate in the food category on record british retail consortium thank you the british retail consortium that's correct uh, uh, they go on to say that ambient food inflation that's uh, things like jars and cans and so on that don't need refrigeration they're not fresh ambient food inflation uh accelerated to 11 percent in december up from 10 percent in november this is above the three month average rate the fastest rate of increase in the ambient food category on record Uh, And then fresh food inflation strongly accelerated in December to 15 percent, up from 14.3 percent in November. This is above the three month average rate. It's the highest inflation rate in the fresh food category on record. So the story is not looking great. Uh, Obviously, we've seen that the price of fuels have come down a little bit uh, in recent uh, weeks and months. So perhaps the headline inflation rate is going to fall when the ONS finally publishes that uh, this month. Uh, But in the meantime, uh, the basics continue to really hit people.
0: And of course, Putin's to blame.
1: Uh, Absolutely. Um, And Alex, uh, uh, let's move then on to uh, The Guardian and GCHQ.
7: Yes, Mark Curtis is an excellent author on the British security state, uh, who I have more and more respect for as time goes on. And he's tweeted at the new year. Have a look at Guardian articles tagged with GCHQ. That's the name of Britain's largest intelligence agency, the Signals Intelligence Agency, just over the course of the last 12 months. Remarkable, isn't it? He asks. So I'm sorry that the the shots are a bit grainy, but you can see that every month in autumn 2022, it's working backwards. There were at least three puff um, pieces on GCHQ, how noble GCHQ is, um, how uh, much, how it bends over backwards for those who are different and those who are diverse, um, how GCHQ was making a single source uh, assessment on Putin's mental health, TikTok, etc. All the GCHQ angle back through the mid part of the year, we see uh, GCHQ being lauded for cyber security. And for those who don't know, it is my old employer, and I have no wish to blacken their name. But I, we never had this kind of puff piece coverage in my day, nor did we even seek it. Um, you know, the Snowden revelations uh, back to April, May. We have the mothers who job share, uh, so it's you know a, a sort of diversity and, and modern age puff piece that mothers job share. In uh, that's level A4 by the look of it in the, in the donut, uh, and Russian hackers uh, targeting opponents of the Ukraine invasion. So Fleming. Much in the news again to Jeremy Fleming, the, the director, who's who's courted publicity much more than his predecessors, and um, back to the beginning of the year. Uh, Why is GCHQ saying Putin's been misinformed about Ukraine war? GCHQ seems to be operating the Guardian. Of course, it wasn't long ago that GCHQ officers supervised the smashing of a Guardian hard disk in the Snowden affair. Glenn Greenwald reported on that. The final one, actually, uh, the the earliest chronologically is just before the turn of the year last year, December, 2021, uh, the Intelligence and Security Committee of Parliament was complaining at this point uh, that it thought it had been misled over the reasons for Robert Hannigan's uh, handover to Sir Jeremy Fleming. Um, Of course, Hannigan uh, knew a disgraced uh, priest, and that's uh, the only questioning piece I can think that we can find there. Uh, Staying on terrorism, The Guardian just yesterday has brought out this hair-raising report that Jonathan Hall, who's a King's counsel, so for foreign uh, listeners, that's the equivalent of state counsel, a senior uh, trial lawyer, a senior barrister who's been uh, elevated in rank to potential judge material and senior legal advisor to fight a case, Uh, Jonathan Hall is a KC and has been appointed the independent reviewer of terrorism legislation. Ministers now have been uh, told uh, by uh, Jonathan Hall uh, that there's so many children who are being arrested for what what are regarded as lower level terrorism offences, some of which would be, uh, to to us, would be free speech and others would not, such as sharing so-called propaganda or downloading material. There's been so many that Hall says we need to whack them. Uh, without necessarily sending them to prison. So this is 17 and downwards uh, that counter-terrorism officials want to take action on. Um, So the proposed new orders, and of course, Hall is supposed to be independent, would be that children would be given a Soviet or Stasi choice uh, between going through court, being imprisoned and having a criminal record or accepting uh, digital uh, handcuffs, really. So being surveilled in their use of the internet, possibly also having to be a snitch on their associates, a human intelligence source that usually goes hand in hand with this kind of uh, approach. Um, then the the final bit of that, which I want to highlight is that uh, Hall's proposals include monitoring young people on their electronic devices. Uh, is there no potential for paedophiles in the intelligence apparatus to pursue young people this way? Uh, limits on their use of devices and possibly real world limits on who, who these children can contact. This of course is uh, either Muslim children uh, or children who are involved in, in what might be called right-wing dissidents. These are the big threats that the state foresees, and they're going to be shackled uh, in this way. Uh, so if we move on uh, to uh, the uh, leader of the opposition, that's, uh, of course, the Zakir um, uh, Starmer. I just wanted to play this silently with subtitles on and, and discuss it for a few seconds. This was before Christmas, but I thought it was very significant in the breakup of England. Um, what, what was happening at this point in a launch in Edinburgh in December for a commission on the UK's future with Labour grandees is that Starmer was saying there are local spots of prosperity and innovation in England, but we've never transformed it into clusters for the economy of the future. I zoomed in on that. He had Gordon Brown sitting at his side saying, oh, we didn't take devolution far enough. We didn't give England a settlement. Well, of course, when Labour was in power and I'm not being party political, but that was the party in power at the time of devolution, uh, the idea was, as Brian has often covered, to regionalise England into nine government offices, which coincided with the EU's regions, nine regions for England. Nobody accepted that. The northeast of England uh, magnificently rejected the idea in a referendum. So, uh, Costalmo is now saying, we're still going to do that, we're going to push powers away from Whitehall and Westminster, but we're going to give them to, you know, metropolitan areas by the look of it, into clusters, things will be pushed away from Whitehall and Westminster. Just a couple of slides from me on constitutional problems and the rule of law as well. Uh, The first comes from Portugal's main daily, Publico, reporting that, and this is a follow-up to a recent coverage of Portugal that I gave, There has been a problem with uh, some uh, members of parliament in Portugal wanting to revise the constitution to allow for people to be put away uh, because they're thought to be a a threat to public health without going through court. Trouble is article 288 of the constitution, you can see that number on screen, uh, is a hard stop against that, uh, forbidding laws from being passed uh, or even debated which would infringe uh, basic liberties such as uh, going to prison without trial. So uh, the uh, ADN party, the National Democratic Alternative Party, uh, which is now associated with Judge uh, uh, Rui uh, uh, Castro y Fonseca, which I think uh, da- da Fonseca, some of you will know was the dissident magistrate during COVID. Uh, they've actually decided to lodge a criminal charge against the members of parliament uh, involved, a very novel approach, which would never fly in uh, Whitehall because of the supposed supremacy of parliament. Uh, but there are constitutional uh, Conservatives uh, in, in various European countries now, Portugal being one of them, who think that a, a valid route is to prosecute members of parliament for acting outside constitutional parameters, even in framing laws. Even if they were told from on high, from international controllers to do these certain things, they're not immune from prosecution as a result. There's also a Hungarian think tank allied with uh, President, uh, uh, sorry, Prime Minister Orbán's government in Budapest called the Matias Korvinus Collegium. And uh, the head of its media school, Boris Karloki, has written in Korvinark, which is their uh, knowledge base, basically their blog, blog page, uh, comparing the rule of law in Hungary and in Germany. Hungary always gets bashed over the head in the EU for not observing the rule of law. And I won't read through the text, but lots of detail here pointing out that Germany has brought in um, the absolute reversal of the rule of law, spying of neighbors, overturning or reversing the burden of proof for those involved in, in the civil service that they can be fired unless they can uh, prove their innocence. And so Carnock uh, is saying, imagine that you're a teacher. And if you like dislike another teacher in your school, perhaps because you're a left-wing activist, uh, you just denounce them. Or in a private company, you envy a colleague's job and would like it for yourself. Just report them. This is perfectly fine in Germany, but if Hungary were to do the same thing, of course, it would be accused of breaching the rule of law. So we see more and more how flimsy this uh, this idea is. Uh, yeah. Any comments on that? I think we're nearly at the end. We are.
0: Well, I think my only comment, uh, Alex, is it's very interesting to see Western societies clearly becoming more draconian, or at least trying to get the legislation in place to do that and it's something that's happening within a number of different nation states so ultimately we must be looking at a globalist policy to do this but I appreciate we haven't got time to debate that further in this news Um, look we're just going to
1: end with a couple of uh, final slides here Alex the first one is it an apple
7: well, it looks like one to uh, some people, but to me, it looks like a banana. The, the The meme says this is an apple, and a picture of a of a banana. If you see anything else, you're a Putin puppet. Um, here is not what we hope will happen this year, but a sketch on the uh, state of the world at New Year. A nuclear explosion is going on in the background, and uh, 1950s American mum and dad are reclining in their comfort seats. And the children have noticed the explosion and are pointing at it and saying, "Look, Dad, it's 2023." Yes. And, and, uh, yes. Here's and,
1: one. Yes. Here's one from uh, from
2: Debbie. Uh, yes, gentlemen, I'll I'll let you read them out because I think I think they're well. Well, we'll just,
1: read, we'll just read out it. the first one <laughs> because it is it is it is extremely disgraceful. So It, says, it made us laugh. Yeah, they made, <laughs> made us laugh. So it's a picture of a bull and it says, if you're confused about gender, try milking a bull, you'll learn real quick. And, and I think, I think we'll let... Thank you
2: to Peter. Yeah, thank think, you to Peter, by the way. Peter sends me all my memes, so thank you so much for those.
1: Yeah, okay.
0: okay. Um, just in closing, I'd like to thank uh, Debbie and Alex, particularly today, for such... Excellent segments, UK column very much focusing on what we see as the key issues affecting people's minds. Well, in the case of the of the uh, NHS, it's also affecting uh, physical health. Um, but these two issues of the war in Ukraine and the breakdown of the NHS, uh, in our view, being used as the main drivers um, of public... Uh, mood and viewpoint. And we need to understand what's happening here. If you're still having trouble understanding what's taking place uh, in UK and Europe, Western hemisphere, try starting from the position that we are being attacked by our own governments. We'll leave you there to have a think. We've got a a video clip to play out. I don't know whether you want to just give a brief introduction to this, Alex, and we'll say thank you very much to our audience.
7: It's Lucas Lyon, that's Lucas with a K, you'll easily find him on YouTube and in other social media. And he's asked us to play this uh, comment of his on the Digital Age, the song is called Digital Age, it's the most recent song on his channel. And because he's under heavy censorship now, and we've played him in the past on 1984, we thought that this would be an excellent way to play out uh, an episode and encourage people to buy his music. Man or machine, the definition's getting blurry, organic to
8: death, I'll never let them convert me. I think this is what they've always been planning Get us hooked on the gadgets Don't worry about the damage The younger the better Get them on the phone while they're in nappies That's how you create a population of addicts They set traps for the masses These black mirrors are black magic programming Yeah, I see cyborgs caught in a mind war Silent weapons, this is what they were designed for Smart watch, smart phone, smart city, smart home I don't really see how this is smart though, nah bro Mass surveillance monitor monitoring digital cages They're locking you in. They want a digital age, but I ain't gonna be a digital slave. They ain't gonna put a chip in my brain, and I ain't ever gonna give my spirit away, nah, nah. Can't digitize me, can't digitize us, can't digitize we, nah, nah. Can't digitize me, can't digitize us, cause we're living life free. Kids these days can't survive life without a device in their eyesight. Deep human connection has gone bye bye, cause they'd rather connect to the Wi Fi. My, my. The World Wide Web, the spiders caught us, we've been cursed by them, yeah. They've been building tall prison walls from everything digital, so they can grip you in their claws. Digital ID, social credit, if you don't play nicely, they'll make you regret it. Digital currency, they're coming via cash, cause they want it all tracked, so that you stay trapped. I am not saying that I don't use devices I'm just saying know what the price is Don't let it get a tight grip that leaves you lifeless Man or no machine, don't forget where the line is They want a digital age But I ain't gonna be a digital slave not me. They ain't gonna put a chip in my brain nah. And I ain't nah. ever gonna give nah. my spirit nah. away nah. Nah, nah. Can't digitize me, can't digitize us Can't digitize we, nah nah man can't digitize me, can't digitize us cause we're living life
7: free